Simon Cropper, who is um, a teaching and research academic examining human sensation and perception. He's worked in both physiology and psychology departments in the UK, Canada, and Australia, and is now in psychology at Melbourne University. One of the more amusing discoveries he has made in the last 15 years or so is that when you coordinate and lecture 1,500 first-year psych students, it's amazing what you can get them to do all in the name of science and education. Simon. Thank you. Why did I write such a dull bio? I would have done it much more interesting me if I knew you were going to actually read it out. Um, I found this really hard to plan for, to do, to decide what to talk about. Asked me to talk about vision, which is my research area. I can talk for days, non-stop, and do. Uh, asked me to talk about you know, the things that inspire me in music. I can talk about that. But my scientific heroes were hard because I sat down and thought, who are my heroes? Who's influenced me? And of course, this enormous number of names, including Oliver Sack, came in to my head and thought, these people have, you know, I respect them. I've sort of, I imagine how they've influenced the area that I work in, vision, and yet it was that kind of, well, I can sort of talk about them. The people have written books about them, and luckily I hadn't, didn't choose to talk about Oliver Sacks because otherwise I wouldn't have much to say right now, and it certainly wouldn't be as funny. So what I decided to do was sort of look a little bit closer to, to home and to me and think about, well, what is, who is it that I've met within my work that has actually influenced how I work now? And so people who are you know, relatively famous in my area, but perhaps not, not so much in the world of science generally, that have made a difference to what I do now and shaped how I do things, and what, it is, what is it about them that have actually created that for me? And uh, it was quite late for me in many ways. Unfortunately, I don't have the, you know, the claim that, yes, I always wanted to be a vision scientist, and ever since I was 12, that's what I wanted. I am where I am now through a series of unfortunate failures. First one was I failed to get into vet school because in the UK you go to sixth form college between the years of 16 and 18 and work is not uppermost in your mind at that time in your life. So I didn't get into vet school. I did want to leave home, which we all do by the time we're 16 to 18 in the UK. So I went to the other end of the country from the south to Newcastle-upon-Tyne and started doing biochemistry. I sort of fell through various failures at university and ended up doing physiology. And one of the last uh, things I did in physiology to finish my degree was a course on vision and the brain, which completely fascinated me. So I then sort of decided, right, I'd really like to not go and get a good job. I'd like to do a PhD, because that seemed like a really great option, because at the time we got you know, money for tuition, we got money to live on. It was great. Um, so I then started a PhD in vision and started to read all of these other people who'd been doing PhDs, done PhDs in vision, and wrote vision papers. And at the same time as being completely you know, racked with awe about the work that they'd done and how clever they were, I was also completely terrified because I thought, there is no way that I'm going to be able to do that. And that's clearly what the expectation is. And one of these people that I started reading a lot of their papers because I was interested in colour vision was a guy called Charles Strohmeyer, who I later found out was Charles Strohmeyer III, son of Charles Strohmeyer Jr. 
who was son of Charles Stromeyer Sr. And Charles Stromeyer III has a son, Charles Stromeyer IV. <laughs> so names of the oldest male child in that family are not really up for debate at birth time. It's not like, well, what should we have about Charles? <laughs> so Charles Stromeyer was someone who I read a lot of his papers. It's quite related to my work. And I was like, wow, what's this person like? You know, what's he look like? And this is quite common in science. I think the, you start reading people's work and you don't have any idea what the person's like. You don't know what they look like quite often. And this was sort of pre-internet, although we sort of had, you know, basic email. But certainly you didn't Google someone to get pictures of them and go, oh, that's what they look like. There was this great mystery surrounding them until you went to a conference and they met them and you were wandering around happily and you'd happen to glimpse somebody's name badge and it would say something like Charles Stroman or someone who you'd met and then you'd just stop dead because there was this hero, this person who you hugely respected and there they were. They were usually a fairly scruffy, slightly greasy scientist of some sort. <laughs> Vision scientists are not always the best presented scientists, I have to say. Strange, but true. It's like psychologists, they're not always the most sane either. Um, I work in a psych plant, I can say that. Uh, so I actually ended up sort of realising who Charles Stromer was. And he was this strange, willowy man. He was very quiet, he was very unassuming, and it was, this, it was sort of quite a revelation that somebody who could be almost like hardly there had such a huge effect on the area, certainly my particular area. Uh, and I was far too shy to go and talk to him or anything. And I remember I was sat down having some argument with some other younger, less famous people about lateral geniculate neurons and what they do, which I tell you was a pretty exciting argument. It was even funny at times. <laughs> and the, he came over and sat down next to us. And I'd done a talk earlier on that morning, sort of later on in my PhD. And he sat down and there was a sort of a lull in the conversation as the other people sort of were quite quiet. And he sort of leant over sort of very quietly to me and said, you should come and visit me at Harvard. At which point I, you know, had problems maintaining decency. I was shaking and it was all terribly embarrassing. I was sort of like, yeah, it's going to be lovely, thanks. <laughs> um, so I ended up doing that. I ended up going to do a talk at Harvard and went to visit him. And I had no idea what was going on. I just sort of told them when I was going to arrive because I was, had gone over to the... I was going to go and work in Montreal for a while. And so I drove down from Montreal, got a hire car with my partner at the time, to visit this hero of mine who I barely knew. This is pretty much my only interaction with him was at this conference. And the whole time I was thinking, God, you know, I'm never going to reach those lofty heights of being this scientist who just thinks of science all the time because I did lots of things other than thought of lots of things other than science and wasn't really the best scientist from that point of view. And... And it sort of filled me, it was quite scary in a way. I thought, well, this is just, is this just going to be the end of it? I'll do a terrible talk and it'll all die and everything else. And I remember Charles gave me the address and we went to this sort of beautiful house in the sort of the academic bit of um, near Harvard where they'd all sort of put all the academics around the lake and keep them all together, sort of keep them out of the general public and everything. And the first thing he did was said, oh, well, before we go inside, so we got our car welcomers, he handed me a beer and then said, oh, and we went, and he said, I've just got something to show you in the garage. And he obviously said it with an American accent, which I'm not going to try. Uh, and he opened these garage doors, and there was a 1960s Porsche, which had been rebuilt and souped up so that it was no longer legal to be driven on the road, which he raced at the weekends at a nearby raceway. 
this sort of willowy, quiet man, was a race car driver. And having a little bit of an obsession of cars myself, which you can see by my blue fingernails, which I'm so affectionately sporting tonight from painting cars at the weekend, I was thinking, oh, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe I will be able to be a scientist because this person who I really respect, he's got a really fast car in the garage. And so we went inside and I met his wife, Elizabeth, who's an artist, a beautiful artwork throughout the whole house, which was a complete mess apart from the artwork. Um, and it was also probably the reason for Charles Strohmeyer's one and only potentially scientific mistake, he's the most careful scientist I know, which was that he claimed, and I believe that he believed it too, that Elizabeth was an adult eye detector, as in someone with a photographic memory. Because he'd showed Elizabeth when she was uh, a fair bit younger and he was working at Harvard and she was a lecturer at Harvard, an image of 10,000 random dots to one eye on one day and 10,000 random dots to the other eye on another day. And normally when people are shown those things separately to each eye but at the same time, they get a stereogram like those magic um, eye images which no one ever does anymore and I was never able to do them anyway. Uh, she could do it by being shown one on one day and one on the other day, which is absolutely unheard of. And the only kind of uh, internet entry for Charles F. Strohmeyer III is this argument which is still running about whether that was a genuine result. Because rather than continue to experiment on Elizabeth, Charles proposed to her and married her instead. <laughs> so love screwed him over that time. Um, ever since then, he's been the most careful repetitive scientist I've ever known, and perhaps he's just trying to, you know, right that little mistake that he made. Anyway, met Elizabeth, and it was like realising that's who that was was a bit overwhelming. And then, you know, had food and everything, and he said, oh, I think we'll, we'll just go down to the basement now. And so he went down to the basement of this and walked into this room with these two enormous electrostatic speakers, this massive cabinet full of incredible hi-fi gear. He turned the record player on two hours earlier so it warmed up properly, which is of course the appropriate thing to do. Put some vinyl on, sat us down, gave me 20-year-old wild turkey and we listened to side one and side two of Led Zeppelin II on these enormous electrostatic speakers uh, whilst drinking wild turkey. And for me, that was kind of the time when I thought, well, maybe I could do this because... <laughs> I kind of quite like fast old cars and I listen to a fair bit of music and like Led Zeppelin I really like and Wild Turkey's not bad when it's 20 years old. Um, and so that was something that was particularly, and his science came along with that, the fact that he was so careful. He was so respectful of what went before. You would never read a paper of his that hadn't done an incredibly thorough review of all the literature and cited it all exact and appropriately without Google because Google didn't exist then. And it, made, it was an enormous impact upon my sort of trajectory. So I was in that stage of like, what am I going to do? Do I want to sort of enter into this what amounts to quite an, an odd game of um, academia? Now, another person who I'm not going to talk for quite so long about uh, that I find influential in an equivalent way was a guy called Bruce Henning. Bruce Henning was a Canadian-born... Uh, experimental psychologist who worked in Cambridge and Oxford in the UK and was friends with my supervisor. And he, in a similar way, was incredibly careful about anything. He was an auditory psychophysicist, so an auditory behavioural psychologist, 
looking at audition, who moved into vision, and was really interested in the minutiae of how we combine different spatial patterns to create a sort of a hole in our representation of the world. And Bruce had this reputation, reputation of being incredibly scary and he'd upset people because you know, he was quite blunt and quite quick and everything. I found him quite amusing and got on really well with him. But I did, like this was in Newcastle on Tyne, I went out with him a couple of times and uh, the, uh, that sort of blunt academic Canadian in a Geordie bar late at night on a Friday is something that's actually you have to kind of manage a little bit. So there was a couple of times when he'd be sort of about to have this kind of heated argument with um, a pissed Geordie, which we had to sort of intervene, which was all fine. You know, we just, oh, he's Canadian. It's like, oh, why, hey? Um, and I also remember him, when he would sort of one of the, or the main way that we collect our data is by sits looking at computer-generated images, repetitively pressing buttons to see what we can and what we can't do. And it's remarkable what you can work about, about what the brain's doing without actually sort of taking it out and rooting around in it. When Bruce would sit there in the booth and you could hear him and he'd go, beep, 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 boop, which means he's got wrong and he'd go, damn, damn, he'd go. Every single time, even when you're doing a staircase, and the whole point about a staircase is it gets harder and harder and harder until you can't do it, then it gets easier and harder and easier and harder and you get a threshold level for performance. Even when the staircase was begun, and it was obvious it was gonna get to the point where he couldn't do it, he'd be going, damn, damn it! Which was always something, he never ever gave up. Even when he knew he couldn't beat the computer, he would never give up and always try and beat it. And that was something that, I always sort of take on board as like he never gave up with his science. To the extent he got so fed up with all of the additional stuff he believed to be unscientific whilst working at Oxford that he gave up his uh, faculty position to go and do a postdoc because he was not interested in the stuff that he didn't want to do any longer, which I have a great deal of respect for. The last person, which I would briefly like to mention, is not a scientist at all, but it's someone who I recognise and feel it's worthy of uh, uh, indicating the amount of respect and gratitude I have throughout my career is Patty Smith. There's a lot of time spent when you do what we do, sat late at night trying to think of something, trying not to think of something, just thinking, trying to write something for you know, hours and hours and hours and there's a lot of music that you listen to. And I remember listening to a lot of Paddy Smith, a lot of other music, but quite clearly one night trying to really work out how to write the introduction to a paper that I was desperate to finish, I was going away, it had to be done, and Paddy Smith's piece and noise was on. And the paper just so happened to be about our ability to detect contrast modulation in different backgrounds, some really quite simple backgrounds of a single sinusoid, some noisy backgrounds and that seemed to fit remarkably well with the title of the album, and just listening to it, everything fell into place. And I wrote the introduction, put peace and noise in the title of the paper, and gave Paddy Smith an acknowledgement in the acknowledgements of the paper. <laughs> so, it's not always scientists that influence us, but uh, many, many scientists do, but I find the ones that I fall back on all the time are those ones that have fast cars, drink 20-year-old wild turkey and uh, strange willowy men. Thank you.